beginning at verse 6. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake, I consecrate myself, that they, may also, they also may be sanctified in truth. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, we are in the middle of what is known um, as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, certainly, um, what typically is called the Lord's Prayer, we understand, is not actually the Lord's Prayer. That's the prayer that the Lord gave for the disciples to pray. This more truly is the Lord's Prayer, um, because it is, it is the Lord who is praying. Now, I think to begin with here, I just want to just be honest with you as a pastor, um, some of my observation about um, when it comes to praying sorry, when it comes to preaching on the subject of prayer. Um, I find um, that oftentimes um, God's people tend to go off into snoozeville. Um, there is, for some reason, a connection with, oh, he's talking about prayer, and the head starts to bobble, the eyes start to kind of you know, flutter away, um, yawns are given in worship to God, um, you know, glassy eyes are part of what's going on here. I'm just, I'm being honest with you. There's something about talking about prayer that is difficult for God's people. And I kind of process that a little bit. Why would it be so difficult for God's people to stay awake during a message on prayer? Here are a couple of reasons. It may have to do with the fact that we feel like failures in this discipline. Anyone here feel like you, you just maybe don't pray quite as you should or pray enough? You're certainly not going to put yourself up as an expert on the subject of prayer. And so there, there's, there's a sense in which it would be kind of like me you know, going to a ladies' group and, and preaching on Proverbs 31, and you're just going to say, I give up, right? I mean, just like, you know, this is too much, right? It, it, it can be daunting. And so just the subject of prayer is, is difficult. I think also it's because we, we don't understand prayer. We may not comprehend what prayer is really all about. We, we, we may have relegated prayer simply to listing off um, requests and, and limiting it that to God. Or, or maybe we, here's the third thing, we, we really don't believe in prayer. 
In other words, we don't, we don't believe that when I pray that God truly does hear me and that he does answer those prayer requests because we are maybe praying for specific things and expecting things and they don't come out the way we want them and we think they should and therefore it's not working, right? And so I think sometimes we're just a little hesitant. So it's like, oh, subject of prayer. And it's just like, I don't know if I, if I really want to pay attention. Or maybe we just kind of drift off. And I'm not, I'm not here to mock or to belittle anyone who's part of the body of Christ sitting under my preaching ministry. The, the, it could just be that Rod is dull that morning, okay? But let me ask you a question. How do you get excited about prayer? I mean, do I just oh, go pray? <laughs> I mean, is that what I do? Prayer is just one of those subjects that doesn't have like all these bells and whistles about it. It is a discipline, right? It's something that is part of God's purpose and plan that he says that he wants us to do. And so, I mean, you know, how do you tell a fun story about prayer? It's hard to make it exciting and wow, except maybe if I'm going to stretch the truth. We simply want to lay out what prayer is and to see what it is so that we can say, okay, God, here's what, here's what you desire of me and here's how I am going to do it because you have instructed me. And so today as we come to this wonderful prayer, John chapter 17, the Lord's Prayer, um, we are blessed to have this, this example for us, to listen to the heart of Jesus, go to his Father. And by the way, in this prayer, Jesus addresses him as Father. In this section, he addresses him as the Holy Father. In the next section, he addresses him as the Righteous Father. So he, he shifts even his focus and, and the character of his Father in his prayer while he is praying. He's praying for himself. He's praying for his disciples in this passage. Next week when we get together, we'll see how he is ultimately praying for us. And he's praying right before the hour of his suffering, right before he is going to be arrested and then put on trial and then um, suffering at the hands of the soldiers and then ultimately being nailed to a cross and dying. And before all that would take place, we realize here that even the son needed to pray. And the son goes to the father and does pray. And so we want to jump in and we want to learn and we want to observe and we want to grasp what it is that Jesus is doing by being not only our example, but also by showing us how we can also pray to the father. So Jesus begins to pray for his disciples and the question is, what will Jesus pray for? What will you pray for? Or what would you pray for if you were in the same situation as he? Would you pray that way? So as we, as we study this prayer, we have the great opportunity to examine what is most important to Jesus because often what is coming out in our prayers reveals what is most important to us. Now, if the things that Jesus is praying about are important to Jesus, then certainly it makes sense that those things are important then for us to be praying about too. So as we approach John 17, and verses 16 through 19 in particular, we will first examine the subjects of Jesus' prayer and then the substance of that prayer. The people for whom Jesus is praying are going to be revealed, and then the request that he's making to the Father. So just pause with me if we would, and let's just take a moment to pray, okay? Lord, we thank you today for the opportunity of gathering, of celebrating through song. Lord, 
what you have done for us on the cross. And Lord, we thank you that we have the privilege of your word to continue to minister to us, to help us as we uh, pursue you and live our lives for your glory. Allow us to be humble, allow us to be teachable, and Lord, would you fashion and shape us according to your will, Lord, through the ministry of your word. And Lord, simply allow me as your messenger to be your mouthpiece, that you would be on display, that your word would be proclaimed, and that you would be glorified, we ask in your precious holy name, amen. Let's first then look at what I'm calling the subjects of his prayer, the subjects of his prayer prayer. How does Jesus describe the disciples? That's the question I want us to consider here as we go through this first section. First of all, they are described as being owned by God, owned by God. Let's look at verses 6 and then also 9 and 10. Jesus says, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Verse 9, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you gave me, for they are yours. All are mine, sorry, all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now just think about this. He's saying, Jesus is saying that the disciples are God's possession. From the beginning, before the world was created, they have been owned by God. They are his very own possession. And subsequently, they have been given by the Father to the Son. So there is this reciprocal ownership where we and the disciples, we could say, are owned by both the Father and the Son together. And we've seen this already laid out for us in seed form by John. Um, let's look, first of all, at John chapter 6 and verse 37. John chapter 6 and verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come to me, he says. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. So the Father is in the business of giving those that are his to Jesus. So we already see that displayed for us. We already see it uh, unveiled for us as, as John has been recording the interaction that Jesus has with others in this gospel. Look at chapter 15, verse 16. Again, we find this. You did not choose me, Jesus says, but I chose you and appointed you. I chose you. You didn't choose me. I chose you. So it's, it's hard, friends, for us to grasp what is going on here. In fact, we often get muddled in our heads how our sovereign God works his will in calling us, in drawing us, in regenerating those whom he chooses. It seems maybe a little unfair. But what we need to do is to allow the text of God's word to speak. Jesus says, Father, they were yours. You gave them to me. They are ours. That means that the disciples were his very own possession. And friends, that is a true comfort for us. It's comforting to know that we are his. 
Not only were we thought of before the world was created, but we were owned by him before the world was created. And he is simply in this process, in this business of drawing his own to himself through his son. That means that God owns you, you are his possession, and you are totally and completely and fully secure in him. You are owned by him. He has your title deed, so to speak. No one else can have it. You're his. Now, believing this truth is vitally important because Jesus is about to reveal in his prayer that they will face great opposition. And he has already revealed to the disciples, and we we know this, that they will endure suffering, that there will be this time of sorrow, which is talking about that that time of his, his arrest and trial and being crucified and burial. There'll be some excommunication that will take place. Even murders will take place. But when we are the one going through the time of trial, when, when if we were the disciples, we would want to know that we are secure as his possession. And like we've talked about here this morning, there are many of us that are going through some difficult times. And it's really helpful for us to know that God doesn't leave us But why doesn't he leave us? Because we are his possession. He owns us. Right? There's something about knowing that something is yours. You guys ever been on a journey and you've finally gotten to the airport and you're waiting at the carousel? What are you waiting for? Your luggage. And you know your luggage. It's black. Right? Why do they, I mean, you know, there, there aren't that many varieties of colors, right, out there. It's just like probably 90% of the bags are black. So you are, yours is black, but you've done something to mark it off. You've put some, like, you know, some, some orange tape around it or something like that. Well, guess what? Someone else has put some orange tape around theirs, too, right? But you still know yours. And when God looks down at us, in his divine wisdom, he knows each and every one of us that are, in a sense, going around the conveyor belt of life. He knows us. He knows our uniqueness, and he owns us. We are his very possession. When you own something, you take it, you look at it, you're, you're careful with it because it's yours. That's the kind of attention that God gives to, in particular, his disciples here. Secondly, not only are they owned by God, but they are They also know God. Look at verse 7 and 8. Now, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. So let's just highlight just from these two verses and the one actually before here, um, What this passage is telling us that the disciples had done or grasped. In verse 6, we're told there that they kept his word. Verse 7, they know that everything that you have given me is from you. So these are the things that they're they're doing. They're keeping the word. They're knowing and, and grasping what Jesus has taught them about where he comes from. Um, they have received my words, verse 8. They believe that you sent me. So they're, they're comprehending some of these truths. And I'm calling these the fact that they have embraced these essential truths. Let's kind of turn them around a little bit and, and understand uh, 
maybe more fully what we're talking about here. They understood that Jesus had been sent by the Father. Jesus had told them that numerous times, right? I am from above, come down. I mean, how many times does he say he has come from the Father? If he's going to the Father, he's coming from the Father. Secondly, they understand that Jesus has, has been sent as the Messiah, right? Now, whether they fully understand and comprehend what the Messiah is, that's a whole other story, but they recognize that Jesus is the Christ. They were now putting their faith in what they had been taught about the coming of that Messiah. So they received that truth, but hear this, although in a limited way. They believed that truth, although in a dim way. And I say limited, and I say dim, because the veil had not been removed from their eyes. Jesus had not yet resurrected from the tomb. There is still a divine shade on the spiritual side of the disciples. If you remember, as we have gone through the gospel, Jesus says to them, listen, you, you know, you're, you're not going to understand this ultimately fully until what? Until after the resurrection. They had grasped as much as they were divinely allowed to grasp at this point. Now, we, friends, do not have um, that same spiritual blindness or spiritual shade on our eyes if we are believers because we have the Holy Spirit who is indwelling us, who teaches us, who, who fashions us, who ministers the Word of God to us so that we are fully aware of who Jesus is if we are willing to pick up the Word and study it and grow in it. So the disciples are owned. They're also ones who know God in that they were believing that they could uh, all they could about him and were trusting in him. But Jesus says one more thing. I think it's helpful for us, again, to see here about the disciples. Um, they, they have glorified God, verse 10. Notice what it says there. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. So, in other words, Jesus has been in them, has been working through them, but they have, by virtue of their actions, their achievements, been successful in glorifying Jesus get that? So Jesus says here, he is glorified in his disciples, and that glory has come to him through his disciples. So we might say this, there's something about their response to Christ, there's something about their work for Christ, there's something about their revealing of Christ that brings glory to Christ. Bruce Mill says, it, says this about this particular section. He says, what a marvelous incentive to living for Christ this is, that he who has need of nothing may yet be glorified through our obedience and service. He doesn't need anything, yet he is thrilled to be the recipient of praise and glory through our lives, through our obedience, through our service. And so the, the subjects then of Jesus' prayer are these disciples. They're the ones that he has ministered with. They're the ones that he's poured into for over three years. And so this prayer now shifts focus from him praying about himself. And if you remember, when Jesus prays for himself, what is he ultimately praying? Father, glorify me so that through glorify me, you would be glorified. But then he shifts focus now and focuses on the disciples, and he talks about them as being his very own possession, about the ones who, who grasp and understand the things that have been taught, but who have also in their lives uh, accomplished these achievements so much so that they have brought glory to his name. Now, I, I want to pause here and just 
talk a little bit about the importance of us understanding how we can apply this to our modern context. An application grids of sorts that, that travels from Palestine to the present. When Jesus is praying for his disciples, ultimately, what is he praying for? He is praying for the disciples who would be the core of the leadership for the establishment of the church, right? The disciples would become the what? Apostles. The apostles would be the ones that were going out doing what? Spreading the gospel. Ministering through teaching. And so there is a sense in which here, this prayer can be rightly attributed and can be the contents and the, the substance of this prayer are rightly attributed to those who are part of leadership in the church. Now certainly there's an application for everyone. But this is a prayer for the disciples. They had a unique role. They had a unique function. They were going to be sent out by Jesus, commissioned by him to minister the gospel. But it's also an application to all believers. So I just I want us to grasp that and as we process now through what I'm calling the substance of his prayer, we want to tease out some of these thoughts, in particular in the arena of leadership in the church. There's a need for us to pray for leaders. Why would Jesus be praying for the disciples? Why did he just skip and pray for everyone else? Because the ministry of the word of God was going to go through the disciples. And leadership, friends, is critically important in church. You know, when the world hears about some big-name pastor falling in sin, what do they view, or how do they view his church? Do they think negatively of that church? He's the leader. What, the church is full of probably godly people. But they view everyone based on that leader, right? And how can someone lead effectively and properly and for the glory of God if they are unbelieving, if they're living in consistent, overwhelming sin in their lives, disregarding God and his word? Friends, there's a need for us to recognize that leadership needs the prayer of the people of God for the glory of God. As well as understanding this is a, the substance of this prayer is for all of us. So Jesus now reminds the Father of the present circumstance. Look at verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world that I am coming to you. So that's ultimately what's going on here, right? I'm no longer in the world. And he's praying about what is going to happen here. This is, he's at the end, and you know, it's like, you know, it's like he's waiting at the airport, so to speak. We're saying, you know, well, the journey has already started, so to speak. This is, this is the reality. This is what's happening, right? But they are in the world, and I am coming to you. So this is a summary statement of the upper room discussion. I'm going away, and, and, and you will remain in the world, and this change in the disciples will, will be significant and will have lasting implications. And, and really, um, what Jesus now prays then is for these disciples as he's leaving. So what does Jesus pray for his disciples? First of all, I want to say this. He prays for their protection. And I would say the bulk of this prayer focuses on the protection of these disciples. Let's pick it up again at verse, uh, verse 11. And I want you to catch um, what Jesus is praying for. 
And I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one even as we are one. When I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. Verse 15, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. Now just think about this. There are ultimately two great formidable foes. There's the world, which has hated them, Jesus has already said, chapter 15. The world's going to hate you, right? But why does the world hate the disciples? What does he say? Because it hates me. Well, why does the world hate Jesus? Because he is not of the world. All right? So there's the world that is opposing the disciples, that will oppose the disciples, but we're also told that the devil, the evil one, will also oppose those disciples. So he's praying for their protection. So we're living in an age, friends, that scoffs at oftentimes even talking about the devil, that just wants to kind of, you know, just say, well, you actually believe in that stuff? Isn't he just some figment of a paranoid imagination? Isn't he just kind of like the religious personification of evil uh, to, to fear people into some kind of moral conformity? Isn't he just a, a good costume to put on at Halloween? Now, friends, I want you to hear this and understand the implications of that kind of thinking. If what they say is true, then Jesus is a fool for believing in the devil. Jesus is a fool for warning his followers about the devil. Jesus is wasting his time praying for protection from the devil. So if you don't believe in the existence of the devil, then you're saying that Jesus is a fool. Because that's what he believes, that's what he prays for, and that's what he warns about. See, there are implications for people's ignorant statements. All right? But what does it mean to keep now in this passage? What does it mean to keep in his name? Let's think about those two expressions. To keep is the idea of protection or preserving. This is an expression that is used in the Old Testament, in particular, the Old Testament priestly blessing. If you want to see it there in, in Numbers chapter 6 and verse 24, this is what it says. The Lord bless you and keep you, right? So the Lord bless you. May he shower his favor on you, but may he also keep you. The idea there is to protect you, to preserve you. Okay, this is where it comes from. So those who are kept are protected and preserved, not just for today, but for eternity. This is a, an ongoing activity. So he's praying for their protection, but he's also praying for their protection in his name, to be kept in his name. This is not referring to be kept by the power of his name, but it's to bring, or, or for them to be kept in the fullness of God's character. I want you to think about it. To be in his name, the idea there is to be in these, these truths about the character of God. God has revealed himself 
And, and Jesus has revealed himself as he's interacted with the disciples. He's revealed his integrity, his, the fact that he's omniscient, the fact that he's all-knowing, the fact that he is pure and holy and right and just. And these are all relation, re- revealed truths that the disciples needed to listen to, and they received, and they believed, and they kept themselves, we're told. So when he's saying, keep them in your name, he is praying that they would be kept by the Father in the character of the Son. It's a prayer for the preservation of their faith in the gospel. Now on Friday night, my daughter Deanna uh, was at a track meet over at Chabot, and um, at the end of the, the evening, I'm walking out, and they, they, had, they had some some kids playing soccer, some little kids playing soccer on a field over there. And as we're walking out uh, to the parking lot at Chabot, you may have been there, there's kind of a, a, a place where cars come and drop people off and go by, and there were these big buses that were parked there. And there's a lot of traffic going on, these little kids. And this dad had one of his sons in hand, and the son was holding his father's hand, and the father was holding the son's hand, and the father was saying, listen, look out, there's cars here, there's cars here. And the son is just kind of like barreling off, wanting to go his own direction. But, but the, the father had his son's hand and was protecting him by pulling him back. Now the question here is this, who was gripping whose hand? You ever seen someone take a dog for a walk? You ask yourself, you know, who's actually, who's actually doing the taking here, right? You know, it's like, oh, I'm going, right, right? But the, the idea here is this, sometimes we feel like, oh, you know, we're grasping the Father, and, and therefore we are finding protection because we're the ones grasping. No, it's the Father that is grasping us. And he's pulling us, and he's holding us back from things that we would wander off into. Now, friends, it's important for us to realize that that is the, the work that Jesus does on our behalf. That's the work the Father does on our behalf. When we are placed in his hand and we are secure It's not that we can say, well, I can just let go of him and somehow I'm no longer secure. No, you can't. Just like that dad would not let go of that son to run into traffic, God does not let go of our hand. We are secure, firmly secure in his hand. So the father would not lose his grip on the disciples. That's what he is praying for. That when the world opposes the disciples, that the Father would not lose his grip. That when the devil opposes them, that his grip would hold them securely. And Jesus further says here, I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And of course, this is talking about Judah. Right? He walked with the disciples for three years. He listened to the teaching of Jesus. He kept the monies and was trusted. He went out on ministry endeavors with the disciples and even reported back to Jesus. He was there in the upper room when Jesus says, someone here is going to betray me, and the disciples did not know who. They had no clue. And yet, Scripture had fulfilled or had promised, had prophesied, that one would betray. And Judas ultimately is the fulfillment of that prophecy. But it was not because it was forced on him. It was something that he, in his own self, chose to do. And it was clear 
by virtue of his betrayal that his character then was revealed to all to see. And as Jesus prays, get this, as Jesus is in the act of prayer to his father, Judas is on his journey to coordinate his betrayal in the garden. And that's why in Scripture here, in particular in the Gospels, when Judas is brought up, we're told, oh, this is Judas Iscariot, the devil. Here he's called the son of destruction. In other words, he is the one whose end is destruction in the flames of hell. Now, friends, let's just step back a little bit. Let's just remind ourselves that not everyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus Christ is a true follower. That's what John reveals in his first letter. Now, friends, there, there are examples throughout history of that being true. I mean, one that just comes to mind right now um, is the, the, the two guys that went out as a team to do evangelistic mini ministry years ago. Do you know the name Billy Graham? Do you know the name of the guy that went with him? Templeton. So you probably don't know him too well. That's because although he went out as an evangelist and did evangelistic ministry, there came a point in his life where he turned completely 180 degrees around. He abandoned the faith. He just turned his back on the faith completely. True colors were revealed. Okay? It's possible for people to be a part of the, the church, so to speak, to take the form of godliness, but to deny the power of it. To love the social dynamic of what it means to be a church, to enjoy having people in their home and Christian things and to be a part of missions and to be a part of activity in the church and still not be true followers of the Lord Jesus Christ. And friends, I just want you to hear this, that much of evangelism doesn't take place outside the church. Much evangelism is still to take place within the church because there are people who are there not because they love the Lord Jesus Christ, but they're there for their own purposes. Now, I'm not here to point out anyone. The Holy Spirit may be working on your heart if that is true for you. The point here that we have to understand is the disciples didn't even understand or comprehend that one of them could betray Jesus, right? So they wouldn't even know who it was until after the fact. And so there's kind of a solemn warning for us. And John, in his epistle, his letter, the first letter, um, 1 John chapter 2, verse 19, just clarifies this for us. He's talking here about Antichrist would be revealed in the last days. Verse 10, they would come out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might become plain that they were not all of us. That's a sobering thought. And so Jesus here is praying for the protection of his disciples and the protection of ultimately his children, the protection then for us of the leaders that are part of your church. Friends, the leaders of Gateway Bible Church need prayer for protection. We need prayer for protection. I need it. The rest of the prospective elders, we need prayer for God's protection in our lives. Secondly, though, he not only prays for protection, he prays for unity. 
Aha, yes, now we finally get to what John 17 is all about. The reason why people turn to John chapter 17. Well, let's just think about this. The prayer for protection is the basis then for Jesus' prayer for unity. Pick it up at verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. Now, I agree with R.C. Sproul and John MacArthur and many others who would say that this might be one of the most misinterpreted verses in the entire Bible. Because what happens here is this. This becomes a key text by those who are committed to what's called an ecumenical movement. Which basically has the idea of this. The goal for all of the church is to unite together. But the uniting that's being talked about here is uniting on social agendas, on moral agendas, on relational grounds, ultimately at the expense of doctrine. In fact, things have been turned upside down, basically saying that doctrine is really not important. What's important is that we all love Jesus. Well, how can you love Jesus without doctrine? Who is the Jesus that you love? What does it mean to love? So it's an external unity that can be seen and observed. And the goal of this kind of thinking that would be in this broad category of Christendom is that every church will be united together as one. That there be no divisions or distinctions. That we would just all come together and love one another and love God together and be united as the church. But to the ecumenical movement, the biggest hindrance to that unity is a strong adherence to doctrine. Now, friends, let me just ask a few questions here. What does Jesus say in this text is to be the basis of the unity that he is praying for? That we may be one, what? Or that they may be one, even as we are one. All right, what makes the Godhead an example of unity? Is it just that they get along? Is it just that they have these social agendas that they just really believe are important? Um, no, each member of the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, have a common vision, a common purpose, a common belief, a common philosophy, a common uh, diversity, a, a common redemptive plan, a common gospel. They are in agreement on these things. It's not like, let's not agree on anything except for the fact that we need to unite. You have to agree. My, my son was playing soccer this weekend. It's a championship tournament. And so here's this team. Well, somewhat, they have to come to an agreement. Number one, that you're going to play soccer out there, right? Let's just, just go play. Just want to unite. Let's just play. Unite. Okay, we unite. Okay, all right. So what's my position? Doesn't matter. Just unite. Just go out there and play. Well, there has to be a goalie. Who says? Why does there have to be a goalie? Well, there needs to be a goalie in order for it to be a good game. Well, okay, you be a goalie. Well, how can you tell me to be a goalie? That's not being united. You're not loving. You're not tolerant. You see, it's, you, you have to have structure. You have to have guidelines to understand what unity is. A team plays together as a team when they understand the diversity that makes up the team, right? 
just using that as an example to kind of help us see the, the, the need and the benefit of that. Now just imagine. If, imagine if Jesus said to the Father, you are not God. There would not be unity in the Godhead. And that, friends, is a matter of doctrine. <laughs> imagine if the Father said to the Holy Spirit, you are simply a force, and you and I are not equal. There would not be unity. And friends, that is a matter of doctrine. What Jesus is praying for here is not the kind of unity that says, hey, let's just all get along. Or let's show everyone how great we are because we are not bickering with each other. Or let's show the world how nice we are by not being divisive or saying that either of us is, is off base in our teaching. Or let's show the world how wonderful we are because we care for the poor, we care for the homeless, we care for all these people. Now, there's elements of what I've just said there that are part of what it means to be part of the body of Christ, but that is not the cry of unity here. Let's go back a little bit into the verse that we just read. He says in verse 11, I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your what? Your name, your character, which you have given me, that they may be one. So the the foundation for understanding what that unity looks like is the example of the Godhead, but it is also the revealed character of God, the name of God. So you have to have an understanding of who God is and what he's all about to understand what unity looks like. That's doctrine. So what Jesus is praying for is a unity that only the disciples and future followers of Christ can have. It is a unity that would be the gel that would hold the church together throughout the ages. It's a unity that has already been taught about. See, the, the ecumenical movement is more concerned about a, I want to say, an external, visible unity. What Jesus is talking about here is an invisible unity that takes place every time someone believes the gospel. See, Jesus comforted and promised the disciples that when he left, another one just like him would come. And Jesus' prayer would be fulfilled at Pentecost when the Holy Spirit would be poured out into all those first believers. And the Holy Spirit has been present ever since in that way, in that capacity, in the lives of the followers of Christ. And he, friends, is the gel that holds the church together as one. It's not a oneness that we, we strive for and we have to reach. It's a oneness that happens because God is God and he's breathed life into his church. It's the Holy Spirit that holds us all together. That's why when we go to Bolivia or we go to Russia or we go to some other place where the culture is different, we walk into a church. We are united with them, not because our culture is the same, but because our, you might want to say, citizenship is the same. And the gel that holds us together is the ministry of the Holy Spirit. We are united together in the Spirit of God. So get this, what evidence of true unity is based on this passage that the church would be kept in your name and the character, but also the truth that we'd be kept in the word. 
It's the word that sanctifies them ultimately. So we understand then how God keeps us united. We understand what he desires based on what he has revealed in his word. So this must be important to us to help us understand what unity looks like. So friends, there's this unity that comes from the spirit, which is automatic when someone believes the gospel. There's a unity of the spirit that is fleshed out by a common commitment to the unity that is revealed by our doctrine. Now certainly there are some doctrines that are absolutely essential and there are some doctrines that are less essential. All right? Just say, tell me a doctrine that is absolutely essential. All right? Salvation by faith alone. What else? All right, the, the fact that Jesus was incarnated. Absolutely. What else? All right, the Trinity, sanctification, okay? The fact that Jesus is God, the fact that the Father is God, that the fact that the Holy Spirit is God, okay? Now, what is a teaching of the church that may not necessarily have salvation effects? In other words, it's, it's not as, as essential. Can you think of something? All right, how you express your worship, absolutely. Do people divide over that? Absolutely. They shouldn't, but they do. All right? All right, yeah, your view of end times. Now, you can feel strongly about your view, but that view does not change your standing with God. But if you don't believe that Jesus is God, that changes your standing with God. There are essential things, there are non-essential things. And friends, we must understand that there is a need for unity in understanding the core truths, the essential truths that are revealed to us by God in his word. So the unity here is the unity of the Spirit that is fleshed out by the breathing out of the Word of God that we have been blessed by. And so, friends, it is a sad state of affairs when the church, when the church says we must not let doctrine divide. The reality is that God's teaching doctrine will divide. And his church is commanded to guard the gospel. And in particular, the leaders of the church are commanded to carry this out. Not necessarily to be popular. And the reason why this is important is because they need to protect the gospel. They need to protect doctrine from the teaching of those that would pervert, dilute, misrepresent, or exchange the gospel for what they desire. Or to put it differently, as the Word of God says, they would exchange the truth of God for what? A lie. So the leaders of the church have this great burden and responsibility to know God's truth and to make sure there's an understanding of what are essential truths and to guard them, and to protect them. So Jesus is praying for his disciples that they would be united, united in the things that they hold dear, that they believe, that they preach, that they proclaim. Well, what would it be like if the disciples went off in different directions and started to preach a different gospel? Each disciple had a different message. It wasn't that way, though, was it? It was a united message. It carried on and resulted in the church being established. I want to be careful here, but on my way to pick up my kids from, um, from school, um, I pass a particular church that has this slogan on the front of it, and um, the slogan is right above um, a very, you might want to say, colorful flag, kind of like a rainbow, 
okay? And here's what it says. This is a church, and here's what it says over it. Jesus accepts everyone. Now, I understand how that message with that flag is conveying a particular ideology, and I don't want to get sidetracked on that particular connection. I just want to focus on that message, because that caught me this week as I was driving by and thinking about this, and thinking about this idea of unity, because the question here is this, does Jesus accept everyone? Is that true? Well, that depends on what you mean by accept, right? Does it mean that Jesus will welcome everyone and anyone into heaven no matter what? I heard a, right? No, there's a prerequisite. It's belief in the gospel. Then the question is, what is the gospel that you need to believe? (laughs) Okay? Ah, well, that, 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 it's, it's the gospel that God loves us. Okay? Well, that isn't sufficient. How does God love us? Does he love us like a grandpa who doesn't care what you do? He's always going to love you and accept you no matter what, right? I mean, listen, one of the interesting phenomenons, friends, is, is if, you, if you were to go to, let's say, a prison where they do executions, and there's a, there's a man who is going to be executed, there's always connected with that man a mom. who loves that son no matter what. The difference, though, is whether you excuse the behavior or whether you embrace the behavior. See, we have a responsibility to love everyone no matter what, right? But the only way we can enter into heaven is not with a no matter what attitude. God actually does reject people. Why? Because they do not believe They do not believe the gospel. And so it is a misunderstanding. It is actually a distortion to say that Jesus accepts everyone because I know what they're saying in that. It's actually a distortion of the gospel because the gospel is necessary and needs to be clarified, and that clarification is a doctrinal clarification. We need God's truth to help fashion, to shape our understanding of the gospel. So the fuzziness that is so often a part of the broad Christendom is sharpened through the simple and faithful teaching of God's word. Friends, I'm laboring on this for a reason. Because there is this... There is this tendency to say doctrine is really not that important. Why are you talking about doctrine so much? Because we cannot be clear in our understanding of who God is and what he desires for us unless we recognize that it is doctrine that is critically important. It's not just how you feel. It's what God says. It's what he reveals. So it would be right to say that Jesus accepts everyone who, having been drawn by God, confesses their sin, recognizes the great sacrifice of Jesus on the cross to pay for their sin and repents of their sinfulness and humbly rests all their faith on the Savior who died in their place. You're right to say that. And not just uh, kind of this, this simple, well, Jesus accepts everyone. Now, I've been a part of a, I might want to say, a movement or a conference um, that I've gone to a couple of times. It's called Together for the Gospel. And if you were at this place, and there's thousands of people gathered um, at the, uh, what's it, the Yum Center in um, 
it's a KFC thing, okay? You know, it's the Yum Center there in Louisville, Kentucky, and, and uh, all these guys are, you know, and it's guys and gals, but it was people who loved the Lord Jesus Christ but were committed to preserving and caring about and, and, and the importance of the gospel and clarifying that. And there were all sorts of different denominations that were there, but we united them together was the importance of the gospel, the essential truths. Now, friends, there's a need for us to make sure that that is important. So let me just kind of bring this down then to an application part here, and that is that we need to be praying then for our leadership to be committed to the character and the will of God that is revealed in the word of God. So we must be praying that the leaders of Gateway are men of the book, that they love the word of God, that the word of God is the basis for their thinking and the decisions that are made, that there is this marinating in the word of God among the leadership. That should be true of all of us, but certainly and especially among the leadership, that they should be gospel-centered. And we have made it a very, very important focus in the establishment of this church that we would emphasize being gospel-centered, that we would be guided by the Holy Spirit, that we would be, be led and directed by his, his uh, ministry to us as we open up the Word of God, that we'd be fu- fully committed to the glory of God in all that we do. There's more that we could say, but we need to be praying for unity that is fleshed out in these kind of commitments. But not only is, there, is he praying for their pr- protection and their unity, but he's also praying for their joy. He's talking about the disciples here. Why, what kind of joy is he talking about? Look at verse 13. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. My joy fulfilled in themselves. So what is the joy that Jesus is talking about here? It is the joy that comes after the sorrow of childbirth. You say, what is that all talking about? Well, Jesus talked about a little earlier, last chapter, that they're going to go through a time that would be like a woman who is anticipating her birth. And there is this, this kind of sorrow and the pain and the struggle of, of the whole childbirth experience. Sorry, ladies. Um, and, uh, and yet afterwards, when you have that baby in hand, what are you doing? You're rejoicing. And you forget about the pain that you went through. You're just rejoicing over the fact you have this child. And the same is going to be true for these disciples. Jesus is going to be arrested. He is going to be put on trial. He is going to be beaten. He is going to suffer. He's going to be put on a cross. Everyone's going to see him. He is going to suffer the greatest suffering any person has suffered. And he's doing it all because of this divine plan so that he would be the Lamb of God that was sent to take on the sins of the world. And when Jesus is put in the tomb and he is resurrected, some light comes on. It's a divine switch, so to speak. The divine blinders that that God had placed on the disciples who had this limited understanding now have been removed. And they begin to see that what Jesus was saying now is actually taking place. And they begin to understand the significance of what Jesus has done on the cross. And the sorrow and the tragedy of Jesus being crucified turns now into joy in understanding that he is working a plan and has worked a plan so that man can be reconciled to God. And that is the foundation of their message through the book of Acts. If you read the, the, the sermons there, 
You know, Jesus, he was you know, sent to the cross. He died. He was buried. He rose again. He did that for you. It's all part of their message. They now understand this divine plan. And they experience joy. So they recognize that the cross is not a tragedy but a victory. Let's go back a couple of places, though, just to kind of connect the dots here. John chapter 2 and verse 22. John chapter 2 and verse 22. Here, this is the, 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 the context where Jesus is cleansing the temple. And this is, here's John kind of inserting his words into the story. He says in verse 22, When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. So he's kind of, this is kind of a flashback insertion in the story here for the reader saying, hey, listen, the disciples heard Jesus said, you know, that the temple's going to be destroyed in three days. It's going to be raised up again. But when Jesus rose to the tomb, boom, they remembered, they recognized, they believed, and there was joy. Then John chapter 20, John chapter 20, and look at verse 6. Here we find um, an account of Jesus' resurrection in the em empty tomb and here we find the following. Then Simon, this is verse 6 of John 20. And Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which uh, had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. And the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture. Catch that? For as yet they did not understand the scripture that he must be raised from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their home. So it was, it was that moment when they saw that the, 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 the body was no longer there. The lights began to switch on. And so it was Jesus' joy. And the joy that he gave them in, in communicating to them the, this good news that now would finally be their joy as they would go out and do ministry. And, and friends, we need to be praying for our leaders um, <clears throat> that our joy would be made full as we are doing ministry. Can I just, just be honest and transparent with you? One of the great burdens of being in leadership is not only the burden of having your own family that you need to take care of, but it's also the burden of being aware of the variety of struggles and difficulties that God's people are going through that are part of the flock that you are ministering to. And some of those burdens are, are, are heavy. Sometimes all you can do is pray. Sometimes all you can do is counsel. Sometimes there's a need for confrontation. Sometimes there's a need for, for privacy because it's not the kind of thing that the whole church family needs to know. There's a rightness about that. And so there are burdens that are carried by a leadership that may be a struggle that could bring them down. And friends, they need the joy of being reminded that what they're doing is for the glory of God. And they need to be reminded of the beautiful reality of the gospel and that God has called them to serve in that capacity. And friends, it is, it is very possible for those who are in leadership in the church to struggle. And so as a church family, we can be praying that they would be full of the joy of Christ in the midst of all that. Listen, listen to the kind of things that the leaders in the church have to do. This is uh, 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, 
be patient with them all. And if you jump down to verse 17, you'd notice it would say, rejoice always. There's just the need to rejoice, even in the midst of those difficulties and the hard work of ministry. That is true also for all of us. Specifically true for leaders in the church, but also true for the body of Christ. Then we look at what I'm calling their dedication, praying for their dedication. The disciples will be left to carry on Christ's mission in the world. They are not... um, They are not of the world, Jesus says, verse 16, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sakes, I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified in the truth. The disciples were to remain in the world, but are not of the world. That is true for every believer. We are in the world but we're not to be of the world. He has placed us in the world. But Jesus says, I'm going. I'm no longer in the world. I was never of the world, but I am going to heaven. But I'm leaving my disciples who are not of the world, who are still in the world. That means that we struggle with all the influence that is around us. All these things that are taking place that that sometimes influence in ways that we don't even recognize it's happening. And there's a need here then to kind of bury our heads in the direction of ministry that God has called us to. So there's a setting apart here for God to carry on Jesus' mission, to spread the seed of the gospel, to take his gospel to man wherever he may be, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. But they're not only set apart for God, they're also set apart to God. There is a personal, internal setting apart to God that is necessary and that he is praying for here. Listen, it's the Father's holiness that is the basis of the Son's mission. Just think about this. Why would Jesus have to come? It's because God is holy and man is not. Right? Man is sinful. Man is helpless. He's hopeless. He's walking in darkness. He is blind. God is holy, he is pure, he is lovely, and he cannot interact with man fully unless there is a mediator. And so he sends his son Jesus Christ to mediate by going to the cross, paying for man's sin, sin, so that all who would put their faith and trust in that sacrifice would then be, Scripture says, reconciled to God. And so there's this reconciliation that takes place because of the mediator. So we can say this, that the the Father's holiness then is the basis for the Son's mission. Why did Jesus come? Because God is holy. And so why does God send us on mission in this world? Why does he send the disciples? Ultimately because God is holy and you are not And he's brought a mediator, and he wants everyone to know about the mediator so that the effect of what Jesus has done on the cross can be applied to those people who will believe. And that is a unique responsibility of the disciples. It's also a unique responsibility of those who are part of leadership in the church. But it is also further responsibility of everyone who is a child of God. We are on mission so that in confronting the darkness, Blind may see, lame may walk, 
hungry would be satisfied. And those are all analogies of the gospel being received and being the answer and the satisfaction for man. So for the disciples to be effective in their mission, they not only need to be protected by God from the external forces against them, they also need to be set apart internally. How? Well, he talks about being sanctified in the truth. Thy word is truth. Your word is truth. So it's the word of God that fashions and shapes us and pushes us to be more like Jesus Christ. God uses the word of God to make us holy. He's already declared us holy, but now we need to become, through this process of sanctification, we are. Now, friends, these are things for us to be praying for. And Jesus, by virtue of praying for the disciples, gives us, I want to say, some core ingredients so that we can be praying for our leaders and praying for one another. And these are the four things that he talks about. Praying for protection, praying for true unity, not this facade of unity, but for true unity that comes through a clarity of of understanding the doctrine, the ministry of the Holy Spirit and the Word, uh, for, for joy, for true joy in the midst of, of ministry, for dedication to that mission, not only of spreading the gospel, but also growing Christ-likeness. Now, friends, I just want to leave you with two thoughts, and these are so obvious, they're so clear, but they're so important. Here's the first one. How are you praying for the leadership at Gateway? Now, friends, please hear this. If God wants to stop the faithful preaching and proclamation of the word of God in this church, where do you think he's going to attack the most? He's going to attack the leadership. And God's people need to be praying these truths for the leadership of this church. And maybe you haven't been in the habit of practicing or praying for the leadership of this church, but here now you have at least a grid You have some things to be praying for. And I would plead with you to believe in prayer. That through prayer, you will be supporting and strengthening and upholding the leadership of the church to do what they have been called to do in a variety of different ways. Then the next question, just as obvious but important to say, how are you praying for those attending Gateway? We all need to have an awareness of God's protection. We all need to know that we are protected. We need to pray for unity in the body. A unity that is the kind of unity that Jesus is talking about here. Not that we're all wearing green or we're all wearing orange or that we're all looking alike, but that internally we recognize the unity that comes from the Word of God and the Spirit of God that makes us who we are. That the joy of the Lord is present. And finally, that we are truly dedicated to the ministry that God has called us to. Now, friends, that first ministry is that ministry to our families. That ministry spreads out to maybe friends. It spreads out to the church and other things that we're doing. But that we are not only aware of that ministry, but we are equipped and effective to do that kind of ministry. This prayer is for us just a wonderful and a beautiful example of how we can pray for leadership in the church and for one another. Lord, help us today to grasp, Lord, what Jesus was saying in this prayer and, Lord, how he cries out to you in this prayer for those that he has poured himself into. 
And Lord, you have been at work and you have been pouring yourself into this local church and to your people here. And Lord, I ask that we would learn from your example to pray for our leadership and to pray for one another. Lord, for protection, for unity, for joy, for dedication to ministry. And Lord, we would do that with, with, with a passion, with a trust, and with a certainty, Lord, that our prayers are being heard, they are being answered, and that you are accomplishing your will. And Lord, we trust you, we rest in you, and we glorify you today. In your precious holy name, amen.